Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chatter. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Kurt Thompson. This episode is part two in a two-part series with Kurt, so be sure to listen to part one if you haven't already. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. So, like the rupture and repair cycle, is that kind right. of what you're saying? Okay. Yes. yes. Right. Right. Exactly. This this notion that you know the you know uh, I, I I first heard this this um, experiment described Dan ex- described this experiment that very first day this. And, I, and I'm, I, I'm blanking on the citation of it at the moment, but this notion of what happens when you know you take two cohorts of rats and you separate them out and you give one cohort everything that they want, when they want it, how they want it. You give another cohort the same kind of luxuries, but every now and again, they are stressed. Their systems are stressed right to the brink. And then they're brought back to this place of flourishing and thriving and so forth. And then of course, you take both cohorts and you offer them an overwhelming stress. And the question is asked, which cohort is going to survive? Intuitively, we would say, well, yeah, of course, we think that the cohort that has been stressed is going to survive. And that's true. But what's even more curious is this notion that when you look at their brains, when you look at the neural networks of those of that particular cohort of rats, everything about their brains are far more interstitially connected than the cohort that has never really had any stress. Everything about the network connections, the neuroplasticity, the number of neurons that are there, all that would indicate that when we have ruptures from which we then come back and make proper repair, that what was once ruptured is actually, that, that relationship is now stronger in the wake of the repair than it was even before the rupture. And I think we can say the same thing is true about human relationships. We see this, we, we have these kinds of intuitive encounters all the time when we've had a, 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 you know, some kind of rupture with a friend and we work through it and people are forgiven and people then continue to reconnect. And again, this is what we would say is that as far as the gospel is concerned, like we would say that like sin is a pretty big rupture and Good Friday is the ultimate kind of repair followed by resurrection. And you can't get much better than that. Mm-hmm. And this notion that we as a human race are actually able to be even uh, in a greater position of strength in relationship with God in the wake of the resurrection than we were in the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. um, I think is something that's uh, it, it's, it's a hopeful thing to consider. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so interesting what you're saying. I, I found myself thinking about... Um, you know, Edtronic's work and, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you're only fully attuned to getting it right. Like 30% of the time. And the rest is like rupture and repair. Right. <laughs> you know, yes. and, and all of us parents breathing a sigh of relief. Like, okay, like, yeah. we, can, we can screw up, but we can fix it. That's the key. Not that we never right. screw up, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, right. Absolutely. That's, that's great. That's so good. Well, I guess the other thing I was taking from what you were saying just overall is, um, I guess what I'm getting from what you were saying in terms of psychiatry is it it's really bringing 
I think psychiatry is, um, compared to a lot of medicine, is thought of such a soft science, and this mm. is making it more of a hard science. Mm, yeah. Explain these things in a tangible way of, you know, this is what happens in the brain, and this is how that happens, and um, yeah, I was also thinking about uh, well, go, was there something you wanted to say with that? Yeah, well, I, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I am, um, I'm, I'm drawn to the notion of how, you know, psychiatry, the history of psychiatry itself has had this interesting uh, journey. You know, Freud was a neurologist, right? He was studied, he was a neuroanatomist before he was anything else. And so here's a guy who is embedded in hard science, who himself, um, firmly believed that eventually there would be some way of being able to talk about uh, the, the psychiatric illnesses that he confronted in terms of brain function. He really thought about that. But given that the technology in the late 1800s and early 1900s was as limited as it was, he didn't really have much of a choice but to come up with some kind of speculation for how are we going to create a metaphor, a set of metaphors, we're talking about the way human beings are behaving. And so you've got psychoanalysis that emerges out of that, which is maybe the best that he could do apart from having any kind of technology that could afford him, you know, the kind of um, imaginative processes that we now are able to have. And then it, it you know, it, it went from, you know, the idea of Freud who thought things were brain-based then into realms where, in, you know, up to the 1940s and 50s, where so much of the conversation about psychiatry and psychotherapy so were like seemed to be so disconnected from the body. Um, we talk about how, you know, the, the more classical psychoanalytic process of just having a psychiatrist listen to a therapist, you know, listen to a patient while they're laying on the couch, but they're not looking at each other, for instance, um, which doesn't make a lot of sense because all they were paying attention to was a logical linear, like a lot of the left hemispheric kind of processes. Um, I think, uh, you know, with, with the work of Alan Shore um, and his, his work on neuropsychoanalysis, I thought it's just such an elegant way of kind of describing, how, looking at how psychiatry is coming back into this play of being able to um, our experience, our experiences as human beings in real embodied ways without being so reductionistic. You know, in the 1990s, the American Psychiatric Association declared the decade, declared it to be the decade of the brain. The implication of that being that this is all, we're going to, everything we need to know can kind of be reduced to biochemistry. And uh, I think one of the things that uh, interpersonal neurobiology has done has really kind of helped protect us against becoming too biologically based because I think one of the things that psychiatry was well aware of back in the you know 1970s 80s and 90s was how unmoored from regular medicine and from biologically based sciences we had become we had become such a soft science and so the notion that we were going to find the answer to everything in the next antidepressant was you know it's it's a really sexy idea it's it's really kind of it's um, it, it's intoxicating to think of that but I think the reality is that uh, and and this again where interpersonal neurobiology has been helpful it doesn't just leave us being reduced to brain biology 
it's saying that the mind is, yes, it is the brain, but it's also the body and it's also relationships. And it's also things that are beyond that. It has to do with the physics of what's happening between real, you know, human beings. And so I think in that respect, psychiatry has moved from, at least in the, in the lens of interpersonal neurobiology, psychiatry has moved from a place of being more of a soft science to actually being an even more comprehensive science in many respects than many of our, um, you know, you know, fellow disciplines are. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for all the surgeons in the world, um, but there are certain things that surgery is not going to include that psychiatry actually is going to include while it also includes biology. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm grateful for Dan's work in many respects because of how it has actually um, enabled psychiatry to become even more than it has been in the past, more so than just a soft or a hard science, but actually uh, even more than both of those combined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also when you were talking about Freud, I, I found myself um, also um, remembering, you know, I started thinking, what about our own um, history and implicit memory and all of that in terms of how, how something like that goes? Because I've heard Mary Main lecture that part of the reason Freud came out with all these fantasy ideas is because he couldn't believe, you know, that some of these awful things were going on in these upper middle class families in Vienna. And so he decided they're they're lying. I mean, this can't be true. So, you know, that again, I think goes to what all we're saying, like what we hear, what we perceive, how we make sense of it. That's right. That's absolutely right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I know that listeners are saying, oh. <laughs> and I, I'm trying to find a way to to say this that isn't insulting to to your to psychiatry, but it just seems like so many psychiatrists now are just giving medicine, and so mm-hmm. I could imagine listeners being like, "Wow, you know, like, are you doing therapy? Are you know what what? what how do we find?" People like you, psychiatrists like yeah. you. So, I mean, what what's your commentary on psychiatry in general with regard to uh, the function of it at this point? Um, yes. Well, first of all, um, I, I um, there, uh, uh, there's no insult taken. Um, absolutely none at all. Um, yeah, so I, 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 your your listeners would be right to ask those questions. Okay. I wonder, like, like what the heck have you guys been doing? Like, right. So it's, it's a reasonable question. Okay. Um, there was a period of probably about 20 years um, where uh, psychiatric training was largely focused on biologically based work. Um, you may be, and your listeners may be quite familiar with, uh, and, and, when, what, and what I was even, uh, when, when I was in training, um, we were told by many, although not in my particular program, because I, I, I was trained in a, in, a, in a program that had a diverse, eclectic um, set of training offerings. And so we got a lot of psychotherapy training along with our neurobiology training and biochemistry training. But there are those who would have said, look, psychiatrists should only be doing the things that only psychiatrists can do. And that was at a time when only psychiatrists could, you know, they, the one thing they could do that nobody else could be prescribed medicine. So to have some kind of medical intervention and psychiatrists shouldn't be taking care of people with psychotherapy. We have other people who can do that. Um, and I, I understand that posture, especially if somehow you have to economically uh, legitimize your you know, place in the world as a psychiatric training facility. Um, 15 years ago, 
uh, 20 years ago, 70% of the work that I did in any given week uh, was um, pharmacology management of, you know, a patient's uh, medical conditions. Um, at this point, that fraction has swapped. And now probably 70% of the work that I do is individual psychotherapy work, group psychotherapy work, couples work. Um, and then a, f a fair amount of uh, psychopharmacology work. Um, I don't, I, I'm, I'm quick to point out that I, you know, there are those who call themselves psychopharmacologists because that really is all that they do. And they're much, much more highly um, embedded in and versed in uh, all the intricacies of the biochemistry of psychopharmacology intervention. And I have two or three here in the Northern Virginia area where if I have a patient who I think really deserves to have another consultation regarding their pharmacology intervention, I will send them to, you know, one of these two folks because I find that, that you know, that's the stuff that they do day in and day out, and day in and day out. Um, that's not the way that I think that, uh, generally speaking, that that's, that for, for me, that's not the most effective or helpful way to be helping people anymore. So I think in, in many respects, um, uh, this, you know, what interpersonal neurobiology has done, of course, is transformed the way I practice. Um, and even now that our, our, our practice has moved more assertively and intentionally toward doing more and more group work, I would say that we're um, even uh, even more so are we following where the neuroscience is leading us in terms of the role that uh, group interventions play in countermanding the neurobiology, interpersonal neurobiology of shame, which is what my second book addresses. Yes. And so even that, um, we we what, what I would consider to be some of the most uh, some of the most powerful. Um, earned secure attachment processes emerge in the context of group therapy that I that I would have to say uh, in you know this this is speculation this is not based on research data but that I would say uh, it's the kind of change that would be much more difficult to achieve in individual psychotherapy work um, and I think that there there are I think there are interpersonal neurobiology reasons for that I suspect I think it has to do with um, what I call the mass effect of counteracting shame, um, that shame is pretty ubiquitous. It's ancient for each of us as human beings, for each for us as a human race. And consequently, the, the work that is necessary to push back against that is uh, made more effective when the work, when the, uh, the healing that is offered is offered in the context of a community where in which one person is receiving what I would consider to be the love and care, the secure earned attachment from multiple people over the course of time, even as compared to what happens in a consultation room with a single psychotherapist. I think those things make um, significant differences when that's happening in a group context. And so um, I, I, I don't know uh, if, I don't know if you're aware of, I, I'm not, I'm just not familiar with what the attachment data would look at or what it would have to tell us as far as how we're actually, uh, what the contexts are in which we can more effectively achieve or insecure attachment. I'm just, I, I know that in, in our group work, we've, uh, I've watched patients who have struggled for 10 years make changes in six months that they haven't been able to make in individual therapy.
And um, uh, well, that's, that's a whole other conversation, but I think that attachment is a, a significant part of that, uh, a part of the reason why those changes are taking place, which is not the question you asked. <laughs> yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, my brain's firing all over the place because I'm thinking, you know, what is earned secure? Earned secure, if you look at just the coding system, is a parent, a person having very low loving scores from the parent on the adult attachment interview, but somehow they're rating for security overall in the interview. So, so then they're like an anomaly to the coding system in a sense, like your loving mm -hmm. scores are supposed to be here and they weren't, but yet, you know, you, you overall demonstrate security in the way your narrative comes forward. So I guess just the, then they, they say, you know, it's either a, a, a relationship in psychotherapy or a partner, but we're not saying something in a group, really, you know? So that's just interesting to me that, that you're saying it that way. And I'm also majorly thinking of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, it is right. so shame reducing. Like we all say we're an alcoholic, you know? So there's no shame in that here because we're all that. You know, we're, we're all sharing our experience, strength, and hope. We're, you know, take what you like, leave the rest. All of these things set up this sort of unconditional acceptance, support, and regard for that. So, you know, I was also firing in my brain a lot of ideas about that. But, um, well, the idea of group work, which is less expensive, <laughs> um, you know, and everything um, that we may need to be thinking about that more is really fascinating. Um, yeah. You know, the steels that I work with, um, Miriam Steel Codes are AAIs, and um, they have an a, a, a intervention they've developed, and it's called group attachment-based intervention, where the, the parents are together um, um, with their baby some of the time, but then they're separate, and they have a group where they look at video of themselves. It has a video intervention component to it. Hmm. But she has said, like, these parents are so isolated that this group of be being together <clears throat> is, like, as much of the intervention as some of the other things. So right. I think what right. you're saying is, is really something to make us pause and think about, you know, what we're doing here. Wow. Well, I think, uh, again, uh, just re reflecting on, you know, a biblical anthropology of life. Um, I think that we, uh, as, as, as Christians in particular, I think that we way underestimate and have not mined fully enough everything that there is to be understood and seen and known in the first four chapters of Genesis. And the first kind of reflection that God offers in that story, right, that is a reflection that something isn't quite right, suggests that it's not good for the man to be alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, you know, one of the features when we, when we talk about the neurobiology of shame, we, we talk about how it is a disintegrating and isolating interpersonal neurobiological physiological event. So that when we encounter it, and of course, you know, we, we, we infants can experience this as early as 15 to 18 months of age. When we encounter it, not only does it put into motion uh, neurophysiologic events that isolate parts of the brain from other parts of the brain, but of course, if you just watch a dog, right, a dog can, it turns its head away 
It mm -hmm. lowers its it lowers its gaze. Everything we isolate from others as well. And I think one of the things I I, I would say that in the last fifteen months, I've never been so almost viscerally impressed with the role that isolation plays in so much of our. Uh, challenges that we are encountering with patients, whether you're, and I don't care what the disease process that we're talking about. This notion that no matter how hard things get, I'm not leaving the room, right? I'm not leaving you. You can't make me leave. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't think that we, I mean, in, in the group work that we've done, I think we've found a no more powerful feature than this idea that, you know, People keep waiting for people to leave. People expect people to, we, we expect people to leave because mm -hmm. this is what people do. This is what human beings do all the time. We've been doing it for as long as we've been on the planet. And we don't want that. We don't like that. It's hell for us when that happens. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that we've seen in the group processes is that people have had the experience of being able to come back repeatedly and tell the truth about their life both the things of which they have great pain and shame, but also the things that they have great longings for, that they're also afraid to talk about. Mm -hmm. And when people remain and validate, even if people get upset with me, people are remaining. It plays a huge role, I think, in uh, creating opportunities for people's minds literally to be rewired because they're, they're giving people the experience of being seen, heard, felt as Dan likes to talk about, what is it like to feel felt, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, across a wide range of affective experience. And uh, I, think human, I, th I think we as human beings have so little experience with that, mm. that uh, finding that in a group, in, in some kind of community life, which is, I think, to your point about what happens in AA, um, for people who are really working in, in recovery hard, um, I think there's there 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 are a few things uh, that can provide uh, as much as that kind of community does to give people the opportunity to do the additional work that's absolutely necessary. So in some right. respects, it we would say it is a it may, it may not be it may not be a sufficient um, ingredient, but it is absolutely a necessary ingredient for the kind of flourishing that we're looking for. Yeah, yeah, because you're never alone. You, yeah just look on the website, there's a meeting, there's something, you know, yeah. and, and, and I mean, we would hope for that in the Christian community. <laughs> right, right. You know, that, 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 I mean, it, sometimes I wish we could do as well, you know, right. um, right. as, you know, uh, so I know we're running out of time. I feel like I can talk to you for days. Um, so I want you to talk about, um, your website, your second book, where people can find your stuff. I love your being known, right? That's, mm. your, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's yeah. Your, uh, part of your website, I believe. So tell everybody where to find you and, and your things and, and all of that. Right. Well, you're very kind to even ask and to offer that. Um, so the first thing I would say is that uh, our website is about, to, it, it is uh, due for and about to undergo a major overhaul. And that's going to happen somewhere in the next three to six months. Um, the website is uh, www.beingknown.com. Uh, the phrase being known comes um, from Paul's language in his letter to the church at Corinth. They're in the eighth chapter, the second verse. There are those who think they know, who do not know as they ought. But the person who loves God is known by God. This sense oh, that, it's, that it's a very, it's, it's a very 
different function of the mind to know things than it is to be known by others. We can have a long conversation about why that's different, why that's important. But this notion of being known by God is actually something that I allow to have happen to me as opposed to something about which I'm going to be the master of and be in control of and ask all the questions and be in charge of and so forth and so on. So um, you can find uh, on that website, being, the Being Known website, you can find um, uh, links to uh, the first and to the second book. The second book is called The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves. Mm. And it, really, it, it uh, really looks at this notion of shame, both from an anthropological and from an interpersonal neurobiological perspective. And then through the lens also of a biblical storytelling method. Like, what does it mean for us to tell stories, right? I, the, the two thrusts of the book are, you know, number one, that the, the things that we know about shame is far worse than we suspect, and the news is also far better than we can imagine. That's what one thing we would say about shame. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, is that shame isn't just, especially from a Christian perspective, shame isn't just um, a phenomenon that happens to happen to be in the universe, but it's actually something that evil, we would say from the biblical perspective, something that evil is actively wielding to undermine your story. Mm. And so then the question becomes, well, in what story do you believe you're living? How are you telling it? So forth and so on. This, of course highlights the role that attachment plays, and who are the relationships that are in our life that are helping us tell our story more truly. Hmm. And the way that we answer that question also is a function of what we do about shame. And so then we go on to talk about how shame, in the book we talk about how shame isn't just the thing that we that makes us feel bad, but it also truncates and shears off our capacity to create as we were made to create and therefore live in God's image. Mm -hmm. So from I would say that what evil is trying to do with shame is not just make us feel bad, but it's trying to devour the world by keeping us from being creative human beings. So the healing of shame doesn't just make us end up feeling better about ourselves. It actually liberates us to become the create the co-creators that we were made to be before the foundation of the world, as St. Paul might also articulate. Mm -hmm. You can find out more about that in the book on the website, or you can get it on, on Amazon. So that's, um, uh, you can also find uh, other, uh, I've, I have blog posts and so forth that I've, that I've written there about a lot of different things about neuroscience and spiritual formation. So that's information for you. Great, great. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. I am like beyond impressed. I was already oh. impressed with the book and now <laughs> talking to you. It's just, I mean, the message that you have and, um, the way you are bringing it forth to people is just fantastic. And I'm, I'm just so excited about it and really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Karen. It's been a pleasure to be um, on the, on the uh, show and I'm, um, you know, any, anytime you'd like me to come back, I would love to do that, but thank you so much. You've, you've been a lovely host as well. Some people are really good at this and you're one of them. So thank you very much. It's been a delight. Oh, thank you so much. That means a great All right. day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at www.theknowledgecenteratchadock.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is part two in our two-part series with Kurt Thompson, so be sure to check out part one if you haven't already listened to it. If you enjoyed our broadcast, 
please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at chadoc.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.